0: Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. My name is Louisa-Jane Smith and this is the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is, and I'll prove it to you. It does feel a little despairing at the moment, doesn't it? We have learnt in the last five years that anything is possible, and I know a lot of us are fearing the future, but I'm reminded of a quotation from the Bible perfect love drives out fear. And this has provided me with the inspiration for today's episode, love. But what is love? If you are currently humming Hadaway, then you are officially old. I think many of us confuse the rush of emotions of infatuation with love. And I think Valentine's Day has capitalised on this belief. Ah, Valentine's Day, or as I like to call it, how we can commercialise yet simultaneously cheapen love and make single people feel bad. For some of you, Valentine's Day is a wonderful opportunity to show someone how much you love them. For some of you, it's a day you and your partner boycott because you should demonstrate your love every day, not just on one predetermined one. For others, it might heighten a feeling of loneliness. Now, Valentine's Day is named after St. Valentine, which has a distinctly religious undertone for such a commercial day. But who even is St. Valentine? Well, Did you know there are actually three different Catholic saints called Valentine or Valentinus? All of whom were martyred and no one really knows the real story of Valentine's Day. One Valentine was a priest in the 3rd century in Rome. Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families. So he outlawed marriage for young men. Valentine, realizing the injustice of this, continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Another Valentine was imprisoned for helping illegal Christians escape. Whilst in prison, he fell in love with a young girl, possibly his jailer's daughter, who visited him. Before he died, he is believed to have written her a letter signed, From Your Valentine, an expression that is still used today. Needless to say, the idea of St. Valentine became really popular and even got his own day on the 14th of February, which is either the day he died or the day that birds start mating, or was another one of those let's replace a pagan festival with a Christian one. In this case, Lupercalia, a fertility festival dedicated to Faunus, the Roman god of agriculture. It involved sacrificing an animal, dipping its hide in blood, and hitting women with it to make them more fertile. I know. Thankfully, over time, practices moved away from hitting women with bloody skin and towards love. The little cute chubby Cupid is actually an evolution of Eros, the Greek god of fertility. More about him later. By the 1400, Valentine's Day had taken hold and the first Valentine's poem was written. But it wasn't until the 18th century that it became mainstream. And today, 145 million Valentine cards are sent. None of them to me. Now I've just mentioned the Greek god of fertility and actually the Greeks can teach us a lot about love. In English we only have one word for love, love. So it doesn't matter whether we love our partner or our mum or dogs or chocolate or football or our best friends or our children, we use the same word love. But we love these things in very different ways. Because I love chocolate, I eat it. But that is very different from the way I love my dog. I mean, I'm a vegetarian, for start. In Greek, they have eight words for love, depending on the type of love they're talking about. Sounds much more sensible. So eros, named after the aforementioned god of fertility, is the word for romantic or passionate or sexual love, and it's where we get the word erotic from. Philia is affectionate love, so maybe the love we would have for our best friend. In the New Testament, it refers to John as the one whom Jesus loved. And the word for love used here is philia. So it's really important to go back sometimes to the original language to fully understand the meaning of something. In this case, John was Jesus' best friend. Storge is deep, familiar love, maybe the kind we would have for our children. Mania is obsessive love, the kind of love that is possessive and controlling. Ludus is playful love, and this is the kind of love you feel when you fancy someone and start to flirt with them. It's all fluttery butterflies in your stomach and excitement. Pragma is enduring love, and this is the kind of love that a married couple will have over a long period of time. It is not based on emotion, but commitment. Venotia is self-love. While this can turn into narcissism, the Greeks believed you couldn't love anyone else until you truly loved yourself. And this is reflected throughout the New Testament, like the golden rule, treat others the way you would want to be treated and love others as you love yourself. Finally is agape, the selfless universal love. This is the love that God has for humans and he calls us to have for all other humans. It is the love that is most often talked about in the Bible. If we consider the Good Samaritan, this is a perfect example of agape love. Someone who put a stranger's need in front of themselves. And so this is where we get that phrase, love your neighbour from, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. As I get older, I'm thinking that love isn't an emotion. It's an action, or a series of actions. Words are easy to say, but actions are what really show people you love them. But this isn't a new discovery. Let's look at what was written in the Bible nearly 2,000 years ago in one of the most famous passages on love, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So what else does the Bible say about love? It says greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is so obviously agape love. The Bible calls us to love our partners as Christ loved the church, i.e. to give your life up for them. The Quran almost always links love with actions, that you show your love for Allah by obeying his commands, and that you must share your love with others to truly understand what love is. Now, Buddhism has a truly radical approach to love. Buddhism encourages independence through non-attachment. Non-attachment is the idea that in order to be fulfilled and happy in life, a person cannot be attached to any one thing because this thing will cause suffering. On the surface, this may feel anti love, but actually, is it the most healthy way you can love someone? I have recently watched Oprah's conversation with the actor Will Smith. He was talking about his 27 year marriage to Jada Pinkett Smith. He said that they have decided to love in freedom. They say they are 100% bound together, yet 100% free. In practice, this means they do not rely on each other for their own happiness instead they use their energy to ensure they are individually happy and then they bring that complete person to the relationship to love someone completely but not be attached to them i think is opposed to our hollywood romantic commercial version of love but i think so many relationships fail because the other person doesn't make them happy how can we practice non-attachment in our relationships Will and Jada says that we actually do it all the time. For example, if our best friend doesn't message that day or cancels a meet-up or our children don't come home from university in their holidays, we don't doubt their love for us. We don't rely on them to do things to make us feel loved. For Will and Jada, that is the model they bring to their marriage. There is a long tradition in Sanatam Dharma, Sikhi and Islam of arranged marriages And I think they have a bad reputation because they are actually much more successful than love marriages, like 10 times more successful. The divorce rate for love marriages is around 40%. The divorce rate for arranged marriages is 4%. Now, this obviously could be because they exist in cultures where divorce is more frowned upon, or it could be that they've got something right. Now, I am not talking about forced marriages. This is where someone is forced to marry someone their parents have chosen for them and often at a young age. This is not okay. Arranged marriage is when your parents will choose a variety of suitors for you and you meet each one and get to know them, sometimes chaperoned, and choose the one you like. The benefits of this is, one, your parents know you really well and know the sort of person you would like. Two, they have been married and know what qualities are required to make a marriage work. A shared love of Radiohead is not enough, as I discovered the hard way. And three, marriages are not based on emotions, which fade, but on commitment, which grows. If we look at the main cause of divorces, money problems, affairs, interfering ex-partners, differences in libido, children from previous relationships, intrusive parents, Differences in how you resolve conflict, differences in communication, many of these things are taken into consideration by parents before they choose a partner for you. Are they financially stable? How do you communicate? How do you resolve conflict? How do you feel about children? Etc. Also, as there are less divorces, there are less ex-partners and children from previous marriages. These are things you wouldn't necessarily want to talk about when you're falling in love with someone. And it means that arranged marriages end up being based on pragma rather than ludos or eros. And I think people who are in long-term relationships will argue that even if their relationships started with eros or ludos, it is pragma that gives it its longevity. But I think what is often missed out of religious teaching on love is felotia, self-love. But the Bible actually teaches self-love. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible is love your neighbour. But this is only half the verse. It actually says, Love your neighbour as yourself. There is an assumption that you love yourself first, and that from this love comes your love for others. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13 to learn what self love is. Be patient with yourself, be kind to yourself, don't get angry with yourself, don't make a record of your mistakes, be authentic. I've mentioned love your neighbour a lot in this episode and I know my classes rely heavily on this verse in their exams because it relates to so many topics, but what does it mean? First of all, we know that the love used is agape love, so selfless love for all humanity. And the word neighbour means anyone you come into contact with or anyone who you are able to care for. This might be your actual neighbour. This could be your community. It could be disadvantaged people, refugees, your enemies. In fact, it means all of humanity. This verse informs so many actions and beliefs within Christian morality. Let's start with topics around life and death. Love your neighbour might be used to argue against abortion because it is not loving towards the fetus to end its life before it's begun. Or it could be used to support abortion because your love for the mother might mean you support her right over her own body, particularly in the case of rape. Or in the case of poverty where someone can't afford another child, your love for existing children might motivate support for an abortion. In the case of euthanasia, you could use love your neighbour to support it because ending someone's suffering is the most loving action. If we are thinking about the environment, and we should talk about the environment because forget everything else, this is the biggest threat to human existence bar none, then the most loving thing to do is radically change the way we live our lives in order to protect the world's poorest countries right now and all humanity in the near future. I heard today that there are pesticides that are so harmful to human life that it is illegal to use them in developed countries. However, it is not illegal to make and sell them. So there is currently a plant in England that makes 10,000 tonnes of this banned pesticides to sell to developing countries. Look up neonics. What about peace and conflict? On one hand, the most loving action is pacifism. It is not loving to invade or attack another country. Oprah Winfrey says there are two paths in life, the path of fear and the path of love. As we are seeing, war is the path of fear. As I write this episode, Putin is attacking Ukraine. The more I read about Putin, the more I see he is motivated mainly by fear. Yes, greed, but mainly fear. The response from Vladimir Zelensky is one of love. However, what should NATO do as a response? War is the path of fear, yes. War is not a loving action. But coming to the defense of Ukraine could be argued to be the most loving action, because it is selfless and comes with great sacrifice. Greater love has no man than this, that he gives up his life for his friends. So the only loving reason for war is self defense. What about the use of nuclear weapons? Russia has the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world, around 6,000 warheads. The US have 5,500. In the UK, we have 120, just for perspective. France, about 300. Can owning weapons of mass destruction be loving? Can using them in retaliation? Some might argue that having them acts as a deterrent so therefore saves lives, but they target innocent people. What about crime and punishment? I think most people agree that punishment can be a loving action. It relates to justice for the victim and supports the improvement of moral decision-making of the criminal. Teaching your child right from wrong and using punishment to support this helps them grow into a successful, confident, boundaryed adult. But are some forms of punishment more loving than others? The Bible says spare the rod, spoil the child. But is hitting someone ever a loving action? Does it actually teach people anything other than it's okay to use violence? Is prison really a loving form of punishment if it doesn't work? The high rates of re-offending proves it doesn't work. Can you ever show selfless love towards your neighbour by locking them up? Or by killing them? So is restorative justice the only true loving punishment? Restorative justice is when you get the criminal and victim to meet face to face Face to face to talk about the impact of the crime. I mean, it works, and there's no doubt it's loving. And in last week's episode on reconciliation, we can see just how powerful this concept is. But is it really justice? And can there be love without justice? Love your neighbour underpins the whole of human rights and social justice. If you can find a single one of the 30 rights that would not be supported by the verse, Love your neighbour, then I will make a public retraction. Now, there is a moral theory that is based on agape love, this selfless love for others. It is called Situation Ethics, and it was created by a guy called Joseph Fletcher. I think I've mentioned this before. Situation Ethics means in any situation, the most ethical thing to do is whatever is the most loving action. This is something really useful for the 12 markers in the GCSE exam. You can use Situation Ethics based on agape love to justify a Christian's perspective on things. For example, abortion, what would be the most loving thing? The problem with it is, for the purpose of evaluation, how do you know what the most loving thing is to do? It's subjective, and most loving for who? So in terms of abortion, the most loving thing for the mother might be to have an abortion, but it is not the most loving thing for the fetus. I'm going to do a future episode on moral theory, so watch this space. So I hope in today's episode you have understood the breadth and depth of religious teachings on love and how it relates to the syllabus. And in these dark times, can I urge you all to spread a little love to the world. And to you, my listeners, please feel my deep agape love for you. My name is Louisa Jane Smith, and this has been the RE Podcast. The podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is. I just proved it to you. But thank you so much for letting me pour the life out of